Amen. Thank you, brother. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. I'll read that text, and we'll pray once more. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And from there he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down before him. Excuse me, fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching and the hearing of his word. Please pray with me once more. God, we need your help this morning. I need your help to preach. We need your help to listen, to hear, to understand, to believe. Uh, So would your spirit come and fill us? Would you do us good by your word? Renew our minds. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. Give us hearts that fear you uh, as we hear what you say. Lord, unify each of our hearts in the fear of your great name. Lord, show us the glory of Jesus Christ in his grace uh, that we might be filled with joy and made like him as we trust him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever you're studying a passage of the Bible, it can be helpful both to zoom in and to zoom out. So as we've studied through Mark's gospel together on most Sundays, we have zoomed in on just a few verses at a time. And that's because every passage that Mark writes is chock full of glorious truth about who Jesus is and who we are. Mark invests the details of his account with meaning, with rich truth. And so we glean a lot from zooming in and seeing why Mark tells each story exactly as he's told it. As we've walked through Mark together, I I also hope that it's become clear uh, that the meaning of each individual episode is very much shaped and determined by its context, or by the other stories around which, uh, around which, uh, within which it sits, rather. And we've seen again and again that Mark is purposeful, not random in his ordering of these stories. So in order to understand each individual passage, as well as zooming in, we also need to zoom out and consider where that passage lies within Mark's narrative. Well, this morning we are zooming in uh, on just one story, uh, which we've just read. And our, our text this morning is potentially confusing uh, to modern readers like us. Uh, this needy woman comes to help 
I'm sorry, to Jesus for help. And at first, uh, Jesus pushes back on her request for help. Now, that's not something we're used to seeing from Jesus. Jesus seems initially reluctant to extend grace to her and her little daughter. And we're even more confused when Jesus uses a figure of speech in which he compares this woman to a dog. Right? Did that escape your notice? How could it? Right? It makes us ask, why does Mark tell this story at all? Mark's narrative has indicated that Jesus has cast out hundreds of demons from afflicted people. And Mark slows down to tell very few of their stories. So Mark very easily could have skipped over this potentially confusing or maybe even potentially embarrassing episode. So why does he include it? And why does he include it right here? Well, in order to understand our text this morning, in order to understand why Mark is telling us this story, what his point is, we need to do two things. We need to zoom out and consider how this text relates to what comes before it and what comes after it. Uh, we also need to zoom in on the details of the text itself. So here's our outline for the rest of our time together this morning. This will be, Lord willing, a four-point sermon. So first, I want us to zoom out and consider what comes before our passage. Second, I want us to zoom in and consider the passage before us itself. Look at the details in the text. And then third, I want us to zoom back out and see how our text relates to what comes after it in Mark's gospel. And those first three points, at the conclusion of those three points, uh, we're going to know enough to formulate Mark's main point in the passage. And then fourth and finally, I want us to spend some time thinking about how what we learn in this passage helps us in our own lives, how it applies to us today. So let's uh, zoom out, consider what comes before, zoom in on the passage, zoom back out, consider what comes after it, and then consider how it applies. First, let's zoom out uh, and remember what comes before our passage. If you were here last week, you might remember that in the first half of Mark chapter 7, uh, as we saw last week, Mark records for us a confrontation uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees about defilement. So chapter 7 opens with the Pharisees confronting Jesus because they see his disciples eating with so-called defiled or unwashed hands, according to their traditions. Well, in response to this challenge from the Pharisees, Jesus rips the mask off their hypocrisy, off their legalism. Remember, Jesus says that the reason that they're so obsessed with man-made rules about hand-washing is because they are hypocrites. They are actors. They look like they're taking God's law so seriously, but their hearts are far from God. In fact, they've made their man-made rules into a substitute for God's heart-exposing law. In the second half of the passage, Jesus calls uh, the general public to himself, and he teaches about the true nature of defilement. Jesus indicates the Old Testament ceremonial laws about ritual defilement were always intended by God as a picture of the defilement of sin. Jesus says, listen, it's not the food that we put into our bodies or the dirt that might come from our unwashed hands that goes into us, which defiles us. He says, it's the things that come out of us that defile us. The disciples don't get it. They say, Jesus, what, is, what does this mean? 
Jesus says, the things that come out of our hearts, the sins that emerge from our inner dialogue, our motives, our desires, these are the things that make us truly unclean. Remember last week we saw at least two lessons that Mark wants us to draw from this first half of Mark chapter 7. First, we saw that Mark is warning us against the dangers of legalism. Right? We're meant to see in the Pharisees a negative example of hiding our sin behind an impressive external show. And second, especially in the final verses of last week's passage, which record Jesus' words about the sins that do come out of our hearts, Mark intends for us to see that apart from the grace of God, we are all defiled. If you're self-aware with respect to your thoughts, your heart, your motives, your desires, your inner dialogues, you can't fail to recognize the sins that Jesus lists as sins of your own heart. Let me read to you the final verses of last week's passage, verses 21 and 20 through 23. Jesus says this, he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus says all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Remember the way that the defilement laws of the Old Testament worked was that if you were ritually defiled, you were not allowed to participate fully in the life of God's people. You certainly weren't allowed to approach God in his holy temple. And so what Jesus is saying is that the real obstacle to people like us having fellowship with a holy God is the sin of our hearts. Because God is perfectly righteous and holy and good, our sin, which is ultimately against him, it defiles all of us in his sight. It disqualifies us from his presence and his blessing. So can you see that as you're reading through Mark's gospel, we're meant to get to the end of verse 23 and think, oh my goodness, I'm defiled. Even if I'm a Jew who has kept the Old Testament ritual laws, the sins of my heart are all over Jesus' list, or rather the sins of Jesus' list are all over my heart. I am defiled. That's what we need to see about the preceding context to our sermon passage this morning. It it exposes us as defiled sinners, disqualified from God's presence and from his blessing. Uh, It's in that context that Mark introduces our passage this morning in verses 24 to 26. So, point two, let's zoom back in on our text and look at the details of our story. Look there in verse 24. We read this. Mark says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And what you need to know is that Tyre and Sidon are outside of Israel. So Jesus has headed northwest from around Galilee into Gentile territory. There in the second half of verse 24, Mark tells us that Jesus, quote, entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. 
For two chapters now, Jesus has been seeking solitude for himself and his disciples, and still it evades him. Jesus' international popularity is making it hard to get alone. There in verse 25, we're introduced to the other primary character in this episode. Look at verse 25. It says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Later in the story, Mark will tell us that this woman's daughter is possessed by a demon. But did you notice what Mark calls the demon first there in verse 25? He calls it an unclean spirit. Note that language of uncleanness or defilement. And notice also what Mark highlights twice about this woman falling at Jesus' feet there in verse 26. Mark's already told us that Jesus is in Gentile territory, but just in case we missed it, in verse 26 he says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, that is, not a Jew, by birth. The woman seeking help from Jesus is not Jewish. She's not part of God's chosen people, Israel. And as a result, she has not kept the ritual laws of Moses. According to Old Testament ritual standards, this is a defiled woman. She is unclean. And notice, that's what Jesus points out as he initially refuses her request. Jesus grounds his initial refusal in the fact that this woman is a Gentile. Now, Matthew's gospel is helpful to us here. Uh, It sheds light on what Mark records. So in Matthew, uh, the first thing that Jesus says to this woman is this. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that leads us to interpret what Jesus says next as a comment on Jew-Gentile relations. Look at the words of the Lord Jesus there in verse 27. Look at verse 27. It says, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Uh, Clearly there, the children are the children of Israel, and the dogs are Gentiles, those outside the people of God. And it's very important to realize Jesus is not just flat out insulting this woman. He's not using a slur. He's using a figure of speech or a parable. In one of the earlier parables in Mark's gospel, Jesus compares everyone to various kinds of dirt receiving seeds, right? The point of the parable is not you're all dirt bags, right? it's It's an illustration to make a point. So Jesus is not just hurling out an insult at this woman. He's not saying you have no more value than a dog. But still, we can't get away from the fact that the the parable that Jesus is using is not a flattering one. Jesus is making a hard point here. So growing up, my family used to have a dog. Uh, And when we were having dinner as a family, the dog, if he was inside, would whine and whine and whine because he wanted people food. And we would tell our dog, we were very verbal with our dog, we would say, Sergeant, no. This is not for you. Sometimes he'd stop whining. And if he wouldn't, we would put him outside because the food was not for him. So Jesus is not hurling an insult at this woman, but he is making a really hard statement. The clear point of his parable is 
Madam, what you're seeking is not for you. It doesn't belong to you. You are not entitled to what you're asking for. Friend, let me ask you, how do Jesus' words here strike you? Does what Jesus says to this woman seem unjust to you? Well, we're on point number two in which we are zoomed in on our text this morning. But just for a moment, we need to zoom out and remember two truths that help us understand what Jesus says. The first truth is that as we saw in the previous passage, all mankind has turned away from God and become defiled. The Bible teaches that in the beginning, God created men and women in his image to be like him. God created us to be good and wise and just like he is good and wise and just. But tragically, the story of the Bible reveals that we have all turned away from the good God who made us. We have not loved or trusted or shown gratitude to him as we ought. And the Bible teaches that's actually why we're so broken and defiled. The Bible teaches that we become like the thing that we most worship. And so as we've turned away from the Creator God and worshipped things that are less than God, we have shriveled up. We have become less than what we were created to be. The reason that our hearts are so full of the defiling sins that Jesus listed in the last passage, it's because we've turned away from God and ceased, therefore, to reflect His good image fully. We've turned away from God. So, friend, can you see that it would only be just for God to turn away from us? You might say, this woman's daughter has an unclean spirit. Well, she's a member of the human race, every member of which has consciously and repeatedly chosen the uncleanness of sin over the right worship of the Creator. Again and again and again. And that's why the Bible often uses the image of, of unclean animals like the dog uh, to picture those who have turned away from God. Now, to be very, very clear, uh, the Bible teaches that every human being is still created in the image of God and therefore, therefore must be treated with dignity and respect. There's no verse in the Bible that says, if someone doesn't love God, do whatever you want to them because they don't matter. That's not at all in the Bible. But the Bible does use that imagery of unclean animals to teach that in turning away from God, we have become less than the humans that we were created to be. We are less than the living pictures of God, our good creator, that he intended that we be. Before we find fault with Jesus here, we need to remember that all mankind has turned from God and become defiled. The second thing we need to remember, uh, relatedly, uh, is that God is free to be gracious at his discretion. God is free to be gracious at his discretion. Let me give you an illustration. So imagine that you live in northern Virginia, which many of you do. Well, imagine with me that you really have a heart 
for the poor in Northern Virginia. So imagine that you give tons of your time, your energy, your wealth to improving the lives of the impoverished in Northern Virginia. Well, imagine that one day you're at home in the evening and there's a knock at your door. You open the door and you see someone who looks kind of familiar, but you can't quite place him. And so you say, hello, how, how are you? And he says, I heard that you are generous to the poor in Northern Virginia. My name is Carl. I'm from Reno, Nevada. And I am here to demand that you pay my gambling debts. And you say, I, I'm sorry, what? And he says, you heard me. I heard that you are generous, consistently so, to the poor in Northern Virginia. It would be unjust of you not to extend the same kind of generosity to me. And as Carl is talking, you're looking at him and, and you suddenly realize, you're, Carl, like Carl who went to Mark Twain Middle School with me, are you the Carl that used to bully me in middle school? Right, and Carl says, never mind that. I'm not here to talk about the past. I'm here to demand that you pay my gambling debts. Now, friends, listen, that's a really silly illustration. But can you see that Carl has absolutely no right to your charity? Right, even if the kindness of Jesus moves you to be gracious to Carl... Even if you are so loaded that what Carl's asking for won't actually diminish your net wealth in a meaningful way. The idea that you owe it to Carl because of Carl to pay his gambling debts is ludicrous, right? Especially in light of the, his past and present hostility towards you. Right, friend, doesn't that, doesn't that blow up this idea that we have that God owes his grace to us. Listen, in this age of entitled narcissism and wild prosperity, it's so easy for our hearts to believe that God owes us things. God owes me a nice life, a nice spouse, a nice body, a nice income, some nice children, a nice neighborhood. Right, friends, we who have sinned so grievously and repeatedly against God ought not presume that he owes us anything but judgment. We can tend to think about the gospel as a new kind of law, such that God, being very fair, has given all people the opportunity either to trust in Jesus and be saved or not to trust in Jesus and be lost. But what that misses is that the gospel is a shocking extension of grace to the undeserving. That there is a gospel that anyone in the world would hear is an amazing extension of God's grace. Is, God's mer is God merciful? Yes, God is unimaginably merciful. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Jesus says to this woman in Matthew's account, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In our text, he says, let the children be fed first. The children, of course, as we said, are the, the children of Israel. They are the ones to whom God, in his sovereign mercy, decided that Jesus' saving kingdom should be proclaimed first. And by the way, the Bible is so, so clear, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that the way that Israel became God's children had nothing to do with their merit. 
It was not, 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 God says in Deuteronomy 7, because Israel was any better than anyone else, that God adopted them into his family. Friends, in our self-centeredness, we get it so upside down. From the perspective of God's justice, the amazing thing is not that Jesus would refuse to help someone. The amazing thing is that Jesus came to help anyone. The amazing thing is not that dogs don't get bread. It's that in God's mercy, dogs have been adopted into the family of the God against whom they've rebelled. If we're tempted to find fault with Jesus here, we need to remember first that all mankind has turned from God and become defiled, and second, that God is free to be gracious at his discretion, and there is no injustice at all in that freedom. Here's what's so amazing about our passage. This woman gets it. And you know what she does because she gets it? She humbles herself. Look how she responds to Jesus' refusal there in verse 28. She's been compared to a dog. How does she respond? Verse 28 says, But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Right? She's saying, Jesus, you're right. I am not entitled to the help that I'm seeking. It is your prerogative to feed the children first. But while you're on such a mission of lavish mercy, is it too much for me to pick up the scraps? Shouldn't it be so that even the dogs would benefit from the bread of your generosity? Can you see how different that response is to the response of the Pharisees earlier in the chapter? When the Pharisees' sin was exposed, what did they do? They hid and they became hostile. What does this woman do? She humbles herself. She does not dispute her unworthiness. She just asks Jesus for mercy. And that's exactly what Jesus is looking for. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus first says to this woman, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Mark records that Jesus commends her with these words in verse 29. He says, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. The story wraps up in verse 30, And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Before we draw our conclusion about the main point of this passage and apply it, we need to zoom out one more time and see how this passage relates to what comes after it in Mark's gospel. So third point, very briefly, let's zoom back out and consider how this story relates to what comes after it. Well, incidentally, the next two stories in Mark's gospel appear to take place in Gentile territory. We have every indication that the next man that Jesus heals, this deaf man, is also a Gentile. In our, our next passage, Jesus leaves Tyre and Sidon and heads to the region of the Decapolis. And many scholars believe that uh, the feeding of the 4,000, which you can see from the heading in your Bibles, is next. Uh, many scholars believe that this takes place in Gentile territory, that like the 5,000 Jews who were fed earlier, many believe that these 4,000, and we have good reason from the text to believe, that these are at least in Gentile territory. And next week, we'll consider what 
what these miracles mean about the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's kingdom. But for now, what I want to point out to you is what this shows us about what Jesus is doing in this passage, our passage this morning. Right, from the context, it becomes clear that Jesus is not truly unwilling to extend grace to the Gentiles. Earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already healed Gentiles, and from the look of things, he'll go on to heal other Gentiles later. So why does Jesus initially refuse? Well, it suggests not that Jesus was sort of badgered into healing this woman, contrary to what he desired, but that Jesus refuses in order to teach us something, right? It's like Jesus starts an argument with this woman that he wants to lose in order to draw out from her the humility that he wants to commend. Jesus refuses in order, I believe, to highlight the kind of humility that lays hold of his grace. You put it all together, what's the point of the passage? It's that Jesus gives grace to defiled sinners who humble themselves. That's the point of the passage. Jesus gives grace to defiled sinners who humble themselves. Just as Mark held out the Pharisees' legalism as a negative example to be avoided last week, so this week we see him holding out this Gentile woman who freely acknowledges her unworthiness as a positive example for all who would receive grace from Jesus. That's why Mark tells us this story. He wants us to see that Jesus gives grace to defiled sinners who humble themselves. Two reasons that humility is so appropriate for those of us who would receive grace from Jesus. Why is humility something that Jesus values so much? Well, first, it's because when we humble ourselves, that's when our relationship with Jesus is based in reality. You know that you can't have a close, intimate, genuine relationship with someone when you're pretending about who the two of you are and what the two of you are like. Pretending is not a good basis for meaningful relationship. Well, until we humble ourselves, we're pretending with God. Uh, Until we humble ourselves, we haven't actually acknowledged who he really is and what we really are, what he's really done and what we've really done. So if God is going to give himself to us, we would have to humble ourselves and acknowledge the true state of the situation. Another reason that humility is so important to our reception of grace from God is when we don't humble ourselves, our hearts remain hostile toward God. I think of the religious leaders throughout Mark. They encounter the same Jesus that this woman does, but in the end, they murder him. Why? Because his holiness is a threat to their pride. They can't humble themselves and receive, they can't receive God's grace until they humble themselves. Mark wants us to see that Jesus gives grace to sinners who humble themselves, unworthy as they are. With the last few minutes that we have together this morning, I just want us to consider a few ways that what we see in this text helps us uh, in our own lives. So fourth and final point this morning, how does this, help, this text help us in our own lives? How do we apply it? Well, let, me, let me give you three ways 
that all that we see in this passage helps us in our own lives. First, this text helps us understand what it means to be a Christian. Recently, I was participating in a Zoom Bible study uh, designed to help people who are unfamiliar with the Bible understand what Christianity is about. And one of the discussion questions with which we opened was, what is Christianity all about? We wanted to hear what these folks thought Christianity uh, was about. And most people's answers were something like this. Christianity is about being a good person. Christianity is about following the example of Jesus. And you can understand why people would think that. Because if, if you become a Christian, you're called to do good things. And you're called to follow the example of Jesus. But those are not what being a Christian is fundamentally about. Trying to do good things, trying to be a good person, trying to be like Jesus does not make you a Christian. Being a Christian is fundamentally about coming to Jesus like this woman does. That's how you become a Christian. You you acknowledge, Jesus, I am defiled at the level of my heart. I do not deserve and could never earn the forgiveness and favor of God, but please have mercy on me. Being a Christian is not about trying harder or doing better. It's about trusting in Jesus who died to pay for the sins of all who trust in him and rose from the dead in victory over the grave to give eternal life to everyone who would turn to him. Friend, if if you're confused at all about what it means to be a Christian, just read through the Gospel of Mark and notice who Jesus helps. Who does Jesus help in the Gospel of Mark? Does he help people who impress him with their morality? Or does he help those who humble themselves, who come to him to do do for them something they cannot do and know that they cannot deserve? Our text helps us first to understand what it means to be a Christian. Second, this text helps us love one another well. This is especially for those who are members of the church. This text helps us Love one another well. So if if you are a member of the church, let me just ask you for a moment just to look around the room at the other members of the church. See if you can make some eye contact with other members of the church. Look at the really godly people in the church, you know. Okay, let let me let you in on a secret. According to the Bible, you just looked at a room full of defiled sinners. Every person that you looked at has some combination of the sins that Jesus lists going on in their hearts. I'm not not saying there's no such thing as growing in godliness. I'm not saying there's no such thing as a difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness. But I am saying that we are a church full of sinners and always will be until Jesus comes back. A church of sinners who stumble in many ways. But the amazing thing is that we're also a church full of people who have received undeserved grace from Jesus and who are gradually growing to be more like him. Our our passage focuses on the humility that knowing that should produce before God. But one of the great truths of Scripture is that the way you relate to God will be manifest in the way that you relate to the people created in his image. 
Brothers and sisters, the kind of humility that this passage calls us to, it helps us to love one another well. Let me give you just a few ways that this kind of humility helps us love each other. First, the humility we're called to in this passage helps us to be transparent about our sin struggles with one another. If you're a Christian, what you're saying by being a Christian is, look, apart from the grace of Jesus, I am defiled and undeserving. You're saying the sins that Jesus lists in his passage, this passage last week, those are in my heart. And it's so bad that the Son of God had to die for me to be forgiven. Right? If we all know that that's true about all of us, what else do we have to hide? Right? God has given wise transparency with our brothers and sisters to us as a gift to help us. To encourage, to, to encourage and to support us. So Christians are those who have blown up the charade of their self-righteousness. So what do we have to lose by being humbly, wisely, but honestly transparent with, with one another about the sins that we all struggle with? The humility that this passage calls us to helps us to humble ourselves and be transparent. A second, the humility we're called to in this passage helps us receive criticism humbly. The humility that this passage calls us to helps us to receive criticism humbly. So imagine that I were to invite you over to my house. But before you come, I tell you, now listen, I just got to let you know I have rats in my house. I don't, praise God, I don't have rats in my house. But imagine that I tell you, I want you to come over, but I, I have rats in my house. It's a really big problem. I'm trying to deal with it, but it's, it's not under control yet. There are, there are actually a lot of rats in my house. And you say, you know what? I'll come anyway. I love you enough to deal with your rats. Well, imagine that when you come over, while we're chatting, you say, hey, David, I just, I just wanted to point out there's a, there's a rat in the corner, so you might want to put some, some rat poison there later. Well, imagine I were to respond to you, <gasps> I can't believe that you think that you saw a rat in my house. Right? How dare you accuse me of having a rat? What kind of person do you think that I am? You would think, David, do you have amnesia? You just told me that you had rats. How, how are you offended that now I'm pointing one out? Right? The knowledge that I've got rats should make me humbly receptive when someone wants to point one out to me, right? Even if that person is wrong, right? If I look over in the corner, I say, oh no, sorry, that's actually my dog, Fluffy. He's just ugly, right? I'm not gonna get defensive if I remember, actually, I am a person who has rats, right? When you're criticized, even if the person criticizing you is wrong, which sometimes they are, can you see how defensiveness and prickliness come from a, an amnesia-like denial of the fact that we're all bad sinners? Right, Christian, can you see that the knowledge that we're all defiled ought to make you humble toward the criticisms of others, even if they're wrong? Right, the, the default posture should be one of humility and not of defensiveness. A third way the humility we're called to in this passage helps us to love each other helps us to offer criticism gently. 
Sometimes in order to love people well, we need to criticize them. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, it's right to point out the rats. Sometimes that's a way of loving people. But there's a world of difference between the harshness of the proud critic who doesn't think that he has rats and the gentleness of the humble sinner that he that knows that he has them too. Right? The, the humility that we're called to in this passage, it helps us criticize gently because we remember who we are and what we deserve as we criticize. Fourth, the humility that we're called to in this passage helps us not to be easily offended. We noted earlier how easily Jesus' words to this woman might have been cause for offense, right? <gasps> Can you believe? Not only will he not help me, he just called me a dog. But because this woman has an appropriate view of herself before God, she's not all that precious about her ego. She's really not that sensitive. Brothers and sisters, how, how often are we offended because we are hyper-focused on how we think we ought to be treated, we deserve to be treated, how our fragile ego is being shattered. We have this high image of ourselves, and it makes us so fragile. But can you see how the humility commended in this passage, it helps us to have something like godly, thick skin. This, this doesn't mean being a doormat, but a slowness to take offense. And fifth and finally, the humility that we're called to in this passage makes us willing to ask for help when we need it. Sometimes I don't ask for help when I need it because I'm afraid that if I ask for help, that will reflect poorly on me, right? You'll think less of me if I need help. Now listen, we, we shouldn't be entitled when we ask for help. And we shouldn't be thoughtless in sort of always asking for everyone's help. Yay, now I get to make everyone, everyone else have my problems, right? But the humility that acknowledges, hey, we're, we're all needy sinners. It, it vaporizes the pride that often keeps us for asking them for the help that we need. Friend, if, if you're lost in the details, I realize we're in a subpoint of a subpoint here. Here's all that I'm saying. We love each other well, when we're humbled by the gospel. That's all I'm saying, five different ways. We love each other well when we're humbled by the gospel. Our passage helps us understand what it means to be a Christian. It helps us to love one another well. Third and finally, as we close, our passage helps us marvel at the cross. Our text devastates the pride that keeps us from seeing the graciousness of all that God has done for us in Christ. Our, our text reminds us that, that even the crumbs of God's kindness to us are an undeserved gift. Brothers and sisters, it's when we see that clearly that we come to understand the magnitude of God's love poured out for us in Jesus. As Mark's narrative unfolds, we'll see that Jesus says to dogs of every tribe and people and language and nation, he says, not just, fine, you can have some crumbs. He says, here, have my body broken for you. Have the bread of life as I die to take your defilement and rise to give you eternal life. Here is love vast as the ocean, Loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, 
shed for us his precious blood. Praise God for his kindness even to the dogs. Let's pray before we sing. Father, we confess that our hearts bristle at the truths that confront our pride. Lord, we pray that you would renew our minds so that we are appropriately humble before you, remembering who you are and what you've done and who we are and what we've done. God, I pray that humility toward you and humility toward one another would characterize our church body. I pray that if there's anyone here who has not humbled themselves to receive from Jesus the gift of eternal life through his death and resurrection, that you would give them the grace to do so even this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.